How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Hi. Tom, this was this was such a unique uh, introduction there. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, the 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 industry people call it A B testing. Oh you know, see, try to find what sticks. A B is that's not not like a blood type, right though? Oh. Ah, good. That was good. Good. I like that. Oh, you see that? Nothing see. negative about that. Very positive. So <laughs> what, what's been going on? How have you been doing? I've been doing pretty good, Dr. Joe. Uh, 2023 is off to an okay start. I mean, it does start in January. So, I mean, you got to deal with that. But I have uh, been taking voice lessons. I've been uh, sort of cheating on my voice coach in Bridgewater because he's out of session currently. With I, I got to give a shout out. Shelly Layton of uh, Layton Studio. I it, It's so fascinating learning about the history of voice teaching. Hmm. How they're like, I guess, two schools of thought that are completely at war with each other. Uh, I can't remember the names, but like the idea of everything, you know, everyone's all about support, blah, 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 diaphragm, blah, obviously larynx. But whether or not this for the listeners, I'm I'm indicating my face, my mask, whether that really plays a role, because one says, oh, absolutely. You got to get in. You know, it's a resonator. The bridge of your nose, your whole face, it's a resonator. You have to, you know, get in tune with that, get in control with that. The other will say, you can't really do anything with that. If you focus on it, you're just going to tighten your throat. You're going to get in your head. And uh, it's an interesting learning that inside baseball of like just the arts and just the history of teaching in general. And just, I like history. What can I say? Yeah. Well, you're, you're certainly bringing a voice to it, which is great. So uh, with with that in mind, though, I mean, we we have a guest tonight who has actually written about some of that in the past, but is writing about different things now. Tom, can you introduce our guest for tonight, please? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight we have the one and only Court Cassidy. Court and his wife, Barbara, were a happily married couple when they decided to have children, but they had no idea the struggle and dangers they would face getting pregnant, as well as heartbreaking loss. Mm. When the couple finally became pregnant and safely delivered triplets, they must dive in, overwhelmed and outnumbered, to face the exhausting and unrelenting demands of caring for three babies at once. Following the boys as they grow up, Cassidy offers insightful commentary about his father's America, the America he and his brothers were raised in, and the America his sons are inheriting, all while examining how economic injustice, deregulation, and greed are affecting and undermining the American experience. You might have noticed that wasn't a bio. That was a synopsis. For Court's upcoming book, Not Your Father's America. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yeah, welcome, Court Cassidy. Thank you. That was an amazing kind of synopsis right there, uh, Tom. Well done. Yeah. Can I ask Tom a quick question? Please do. Are you are you studying to be a voiceover actor or are you studying to be a singer? You know, uh, it's it's funny. So people have told, always told me I should try voiceover and I, I have done like light voiceover uh but i'm 
a late blooming theater kid. Uh -huh. And so my my first if I if money comes from it, so be it. I, I would love that. But I I just have too much fun performing. So yeah. I, I I my I dream of like getting leads in musicals. Like right now okay. I'm I'm looking forward to auditioning for Heather's the musical, which I've only recently discovered. And man, I, I can't wait for that. Yeah. So you gotta have some vocal chops for that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Didn't mean to leave you out. No, um, no, not at all. Believe me, I, I, I've been part of a chorus before. It's great. You sang once or twice. I've sung once or twice here and there. I've done so. Yes. But, but let's, until court, um, you, you also have Emmy Awards and, and Supervising Producer, American Film Institute Life. I mean, all sorts of amazing things. How did you come to write this book? Um, that's a good question. I think part of the answer is COVID. Mm. And then, but a bigger part of the answer is having gone through the experience, the adventure that Barbara and I went through having triplets. We, we were two, we were a double income, no kids. Remember that dink, uh, <laughs> D-I-N-K. We were double income, no kids people. We were working successfully in our children. Barbara's an interior designer. I was writing and producing in television. And we basically, our, most of our lives were trying not to get pregnant. I mean, that was, the, I mean, as a young man, my mortal fear was that I would get some young woman pregnant. And Barbara probably had the fear that somebody would get her pregnant, right? And so we were married a number of years before we decided to give it a shot. And we said, well, we just stop, stop birth control and boom, it's gonna happen. Um, not, not the case, didn't happen. Um, and so we started trying uh, to have a family, start a family and we tried everything. Anybody that's been through this uh, predicament, I mean, there's just, you know, Barbara took her temperature every day for two years. We tried the hamster thing. We tried the turkey baster, we tried uh, hengiosalpingiogram. Uh, I'm not sure what that was. I thought it had to do with something related to salminio, but I wasn't sure. Um, I mean, you know, just on and on and on and, and couldn't figure it out. And so uh, there was a, a kind of a break in Barber's business. And I got an opportunity to produce a show in New York, a series, a daily live television series in New York. And um, we moved there um, and started IVF, in mm. vitro fertilization. Seems like a good idea, right? And by the way, in my father's America, no such thing existed. If, if I had grown up in my father's America, we wouldn't have children. In fact, in the, the America my brothers and I came up in, until the early 90s, uh, in vitro fertilization, fertility medicine didn't really exist um, within reach of folks like us. And, um, but it did by 19, the early 90s. And so we dived in to, uh, I, I describe a scene where I'm in the doctor's office in New York and I've got a grapefruit in one hand and a syringe in the other. Mm. And I'm learning to, throw the needle into the grapefruit. The grapefruit is a stand-in for Barb's butt, right? <laughs> and the nurse is saying, this is kind of the resistance you're gonna get with giving her shots. And, and I said, lady, I'm 
I'm a comedy writer and a TV producer. This is way outside of my, my interest area and experience, right? And she said, yeah, no, you'll be good. You'll get good at it. And I did ultimately gave her a lot of shots and we laughed and giggled almost every time. Um, but that, that journey was fraught. I just have to say, uh, with moments that we didn't expect and no one warned us about. Um, one was Barbara hyperstimulated because of producing too much estrogen because of the hormone shots. Um, we tragically lost a little baby girl born too soon when we got back to Los Angeles. I mean, we just kept trying. This took several years. And there was a moment at which our doctor in Los Angeles said, you know, we have an, we have a term for you guys, people like you that are in IVF. And I said, what? And he said, um, we refer to you as the walking wounded. Wow. That, you know, because you keep, we're you know, reasonably successful people who've been able to achieve things in our lives. And we're striking out, you know, one time after the other with this. So um, to go back to your question, I wanted to write the book to, in, to inform the kids about what we went through, that they would have no idea what we went through because they were being conceived, but also they were tiny, tiny for, you know, um, for a lot of it. And then so I, I, it's a window from when we started trying to have a family to when they go off to college and our house got really quiet, mm. uh, scary quiet compared to what it had been. But um, I wanted to, to write inside that window and share with them and obviously readers, um, other readers, what we had experienced and the joys of it and the, and the, the ups and downs, but a lot of joy, a lot of, we, by the time we had children, we so wanted to have children and we so loved them. It got us through many, many nights. Yeah. I mean, the, the stress, the disappointment, I, I mean, I can only imagine, especially when you're both so productive literally in your careers how did you manage that part we that was it was very difficult um but i think what the secret for us was we kept returning to our commitment to do this um not knowing how it would come out it's a little bit like you know when you, the marriage commitment you make you commit to uh, another person in marriage, not knowing how it's going to work out. You probably didn't know your marriage would last 35 years. I didn't know mine would last 40 years, but you commit to a result um, and hopefully aren't too attached to it and hopefully have some freedom around it and hopefully go for it. You just don't stop. You don't quit. And we were knocked off our feet a couple of times, but uh, I think at one point toward the end, we took about six months off and it was, I thought, well, maybe we're not going to have kids. And then Barbara said, I'll go one more time, mm. one more cycle. And we had to borrow money at that point <laughs> to do it. We'd just blown through all the insurance and everything. And so we did it and she got pregnant with triplets. Wow. And it was, it was horrifying. It was horrifying because, um, 
we had lost a little baby girl. Yeah. A singleton. What, you know, and so we thought, oh God, what if we, this is really scary. And we were in the ultrasound room with the doctor and Barbara's laying there and he's moving this wand around and he says, oh, it looks like you're pregnant. And you can see this little tiny mm. pulsating thing. And I went, oh, wow. And she's laying on the table, you know, uh, quietly. And, and then he moves the wand around. He goes, oh, look at this. How you've got, it looks like twins. And I thought privately to myself, great, we're done. You know, two, off we go. Nice. And then he moves the thing and he says, oh boy, look, at <laughs> you've got triplets. And I went, no, 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 go back. You, 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 you already covered that. Right? He goes, no, no. And he goes through it. One, two, three. And we both left. We talk about deer in the headlights. We were just stunned and afraid um, because it ends up being a high risk pregnancy. It becomes a highly managed pregnancy. And given what we had been through, it just seemed um, scary. Of course, an incredible story about how the pregnancy happened. Why are you writing it now? I mean, why now? Why now is a great question. And it's because I had the time. During, I kept, I'm a, I'm a writer and a note taker and a kind of a, uh, you know, I'm thrown to kind of keep track of what's going on. So I kept a journal. I kept notes. I kept schedules. I kept, uh, Barbara kept a little journal for about nine months at, in the second year when we could think straight a little bit. Um, I, did, I actually kept a, a file called monologue notes. Joke, monologue jokes. I thought I was going to maybe do, I don't know, a TED talk or something where I was going to, I don't know what I was thinking, but not, I had no time to do that. And, and for the whole, for this whole window we're talking about until the kids go off to college. And then when they were in college, it was all about working to provide for the family, both Barbara and me. And so I was writing, but I didn't have time to write something like this. I didn't have time to write my own book, even even in even part time, even in, the, in, in, you know, and I had done during my career, I'd done spec scripts and things when I was between shows. But this was a bigger engagement. I knew that and I just didn't have time to do it. So when we finally got the kids through college and um I started looking, we moved and I started looking at some stuff that sort of fell out of file folders and boxes. And there were some really funny incidents that I had kept track of. So I shared them, Barbara and I shared them with the kids. We sat down and said, look at this, you know, and we ran through it and we were just laughing our asses off um, because it was so fun and, and it took us back and they remembered certain things, but things they didn't remember, they're howling about. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a book here. Maybe there is a book here. And, and then um, a little bit before COVID, I, I dived in and then it gave me all the time I needed. My business stopped. My television business literally stopped really? in, in the beginning of 2020. Wow. So, But isn't yeah. it interesting how, how you can still make the best of something like that? You know, everything happens for a reason. Not yeah. Sure. 
you know. Yeah, I think that's really true. And it was, you know, there were moments of exhaustion and moments of, um, you know, being scared and my, as a father, my worrying about paying, how are we going to pay for it all and all that. But I, all at the same it. time, I mean, I, I, I've i got, you know, four kids, but I didn't have yeah, to so you know. college all at the same time. I mean, two and two, but three tuitions at the same time? Yeah. It's crazy, right? Jeez. And anybody with like yourself with kids, it's it's just uh, you know, you really have to have your attention on on what you're supposed to be doing. I was telling my son's wife, we were talking the other day, and she's and I said, you know, really being a parent is all about providing opportunities. And if you are lucky as we were we could provide a lot of opportunities. We couldn't provide, I have, we have friends who have triplets, they send them to private school at $30,000 each. That's 90 grand a year for the whole time, K through 12. Wow. And we, we couldn't do that. First of all, I don't believe in doing that, <laughs> but, but, it wouldn't, but we couldn't do it. And, but some people can, you know, so they provided that opportunity. We provided what we could. Right. One of my phrases is, I've worked hard to be this lucky. Yeah, oh, that's great. Because really, you know, yeah. you work hard to, to be this lucky. So uh, the other question I have is, again, having two pairs of two, um, how do you manage who gets the attention when, if you've got three all at the same age? Well, um you probably know something about this. Most parents do to some degree. It, it, it's, triplets is, a, is an interesting, is different in many ways. One, I'll start with the fact that when we left the hospital, the nurse said to me, Mr. Cassidy, the triplets are on a schedule. You're going to want to keep them on a schedule. Parents who have one child feel like they can, you know, feed them, put them to bed whenever they want. And with two people and two kids, a lot of people try and do that as well. With three, it's not going to work for you. <laughs> and I'm looking at this nurse and she said, she said, so we strongly recommend you keep them on a schedule. And I said, okay, all right. And she took me by the shoulders, literally, and said, no, you have to understand, keep them on a schedule. Right? Wow. And we did. So part yeah. of it was organization. Um, and I think that's good for boys. Boys want to know what, what are we doing? What's next? Where are we going? So there was a lot of organization. And Barbara and I are, I have to say, we're fortunate to be great partners. So we divided it. We divided up the work. We shared the work, especially when we didn't have any help. We had to share the work. Um, so it wasn't like one of us was, like she was just nursing and that's all she did, you know, or, or I was just washing dishes and that's, you know what I mean? We did all of it together. Um, I probably changed 10,000 diapers. Mm, yeah. Maybe. Uh, but um, so that's part of it. That's part of how we did it. And, and again, this sort of commitment, once we decided to have the three, we decided to take responsibility for all of it, mm. which for us meant all of it. It meant taking responsibility for whatever might happen during the pregnancy, whatever might happen as a result of the pregnancy, whatever might happen as we went along the road to raising the kids, 
what and then by the way as another part of the book is responsible for the the america they're growing up in and and shining a light on that yeah let's talk about that um as you alluded to earlier you know the america the we were growing up and was very different you know it wasn't yeah. ibf for many years so right. how do you address that in the book what are you what are you thinking well my my commentary um uh, on sort of what's happening in the america they're inheriting is based on i think largely my sort of political orientation i come out of a newspaper family i'm a kind of a political activist and environmentalist so i'm, I'm my eyes are open my ears are open uh, even though i'm covered with children and and at the same time um, i'm wanting them to know more than just before there was google right. you know or before smartphones uh, I wanted to give them some context for what was happening. And it was happening around us as we were raising them. So, for example, in 2000, they were five years old. They were born in 1995. Right? Okay. And we put them to bed and we're watching television and the Supreme Court hands the presidency George W. Bush, who has lost the election, lost the popular vote by 500,000 votes. And lost in general. And, yeah, he lost. Yeah. And Barbara turned to me and said, this is the beginning of the end. Mm. And I thought, well, that's a little dramatic, but maybe not. And, and so it's an, in a moment like that, you go forward to, to 2008 and you know, well, there's Enron along the way and WorldCom, these massive collapses of businesses and Deepwater Horizon and uh, San Bruno here in California. These things are happening as we're coming and going with our children to baseball games, you know? <laughs> and I'm thinking, what, what's under this? What's underneath all of this? Um, and then you get to 2008 and we're a family in a house where trying to buy with we've got two mortgages and uh we don't have college at our doorstep but it's coming we can see it coming and the country's falling apart and both of the lenders that we were with were collapsing and you know it's like okay i didn't cause this i'm clear about that but it's not exactly like the rain's not falling on everyone it's falling on everyone right and um so I don't know. It just that I thought that was an interesting part of the book. I thought it would make an interesting part of the book. It's it's a father's concerns, frankly. Mm. You know, um, it's me wanting them to know. Look at this. One of my sons came out of college and went to work for Wells Fargo, and then he went to work for Goldman Sachs. He now works for another. He works for TPG Private Equity. So he's at Goldman Sachs. Well, when Goldman Sachs was sold. The family that sold the company said, keep it private. We don't want this going public. It was a private company. The owners uh, bore the weight of success and failure. But oh no, the guys that bought it said, we're taking it public. Why would they do that? Because the minute they did that, they shared the, the risk 
with shareholders and they could step back and take the profits, but not the, the upside, but not the downside. Mm. So greed, underlying greed, right? So I started seeing this in, if you go to the Deepwater Horizon incident in the Gulf of Florida incident, I mean, a complete tragedy, um, the company BP had a blowout preventer in place that a study later revealed was insufficient to prevent a blowout. They just didn't want to spend the money. Um, San Bruno, where a whole neighborhood blew up with a gas leak, PG&E just didn't want to do the maintenance. Cost money, right? So I wanted to share that undercurrent um, with the reader and, and have us be a little, a little more aware, maybe. And, and in the book, Not Your Father's America, so... What is going to be different? I mean, this is not your father's America, and yet so much seems to be repeating itself in some ways. Would you say, or am I missing something here? Well, uh, the the root cause, um, I, I'll go back to a quick incident uh, in the book where my father was running for mayor of San Diego and I was following his campaign and ultimately got involved in helping him in the campaign, but he was speaking in, in Balboa Park to a group of people and in a mayor's campaign, uh, he, and he was asked, are you for rent control? Well, in a mayor's campaign, that's a hot button issue because renters want you to be for rent control and landlords don't want you to be for rent control. So you, you're gonna cut the donation pie in half uh, at least. And he said, I'm for greed control. Mm. And I thought it was brilliant. And because that's the heart of the matter, right? So, so what I think is happening in America now is we are waking up to this, uh, this undercurrent and this undercurrent it has been there before. There were great robber barons in the 19th century and great robber barons in the 20th century and in the 21st century, of course. Um, but we also know that regulation, intelligent, you know, fairly enforced regulation saves lives, saves money, saves jobs, saves fortunes. When you think about the Enron collapse, a completely unregulated company back in the day, and 29,000 people lost their jobs overnight. Uh, you look at this uh, crypto business, completely unregulated. It's speculation for the sake of speculation. And how many people have lost how many hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So... What we need, and I think what the promise of the future is, is regulation, intelligent, thoughtful, um, fairly enforced regulation that we've had in the past. We were just talking about Citizens United. Before Citizens United, we had campaign finance laws in America. Um, we have had strong regulation of public utilities in the past. But over time, starting with Reagan, actually, in the in 1980, the 80s, um, 
the push was to deregulate. My own industry of television is completely different than the business I came into as, as a young uh, production assistant. How is that? How is it so different? Well, back in the day, um, uh, when I met Walter Cronkite in the elevator one day at CBS, for example, uh, the news departments at networks were sacrosanct. They were, they were populated mostly by, by newspaper reporters. They had a strong journalistic ethic. And the network said, you do news. We'll do entertainment over here. You don't have to make money. You don't have to get ratings. We'll do all that over here with Carol Burnett or whomever, mm. right? And that lasted until about 2000, when Clinton, of all people... Of all people, though? <laughs> well, you know... One wouldn't think maybe he he presided over the final deregulation of television by getting rid of something called the financial syndication rules. So it used to be if you were um, Mary Tyler Moore, for example, in the Mary Tyler Moore show of old, when that show, the network got to, the network paid for the show, got to run it twice, and then it went back to Mary Tyler Moore and her and her people. And she could put it in syndication and live off it forever. Nowadays, if you're lucky enough to sell a show, you're lucky enough to get a tiny piece of it because the network owns it, the studio owns it, Netflix owns it, Amazon owns it. The creator is no longer no longer uh, owns the show, um, and the network can run it ad infinitum. And if I'm not mistaken, the royalties are on like a diminishing returns basis after that too, right? They are. Like there's a there's a bar in LA I know about because uh, I I listened to a podcast with Jenna Fisher talking about it. If it's in the sense when you get a royalty check, you can bring that to the bar. You get a free drink. They pin it on the wall. It's that <laughs> perfect. Yeah, and by the time mo oh, this may predate. Well, no, it's probably tied to the deregulation of television because television movies. And feature films. I mean, there's been a lot of shenanigans in that whole area of, of residuals and, and points. But um, as a writer, when you if you're lucky enough to sell a movie, uh, you might be lucky enough to keep what they call our monkey points, meaning it's just you're never going to see it. Um, I did a movie called Kenny Rogers as the Gambler. And a year after the first one was made, uh, somebody's private jet was charged to the production. Mm. You know what I mean? So why would you do that? Well, that's just to remove any profitability that might have been there uh, and, and might have gone to, to writers. So, but the big thing is deregulation. The big thing is that, and this paves the way for Fox, paves the way for, for uh, the cable business. And the, uh, the, the concept that television stations needed to do some public service programming and they needed to contribute to the community and they had to qualify for their licenses, requalify for their licenses every year, no longer the case. It's the Wild West. Hmm. And as a result, we have news that we're not sure is news. Correct. It's all the it's all for ads. Yeah. It, when like I get accused every now and then of being like, uh, "Oh, you're indoctrinated by by CNN," and I'm like, 
first off, I'm under 30. I'm not watching cable news. But any any news station that's on TV, you can say very safely assume they're there to sell ads. Doesn't matter if it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox is the obvious one, but they're all there to sell ads and make you mad. Well, right. I'm sorry. Just back to that point, uh, Tom, you're quite quite right. And I didn't quite finish the point was when the, with the deregulation of television, news departments became profit-making divisions of the network mm. and rating-seeking divisions of the network. That's a, that's a paradigm shift uh, for, for news. So to your point. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of greed um, and that, again, that, that speaks so much to what the IM is about. The IM is saying, you know, we're all doing the best we can, but everybody wants the same thing, which is to feel valued by somebody else. And we have spent millennia increasing our value as a species by decreasing somebody else's. And then we're astonished that the other person or the other country or the other group does the same. Um, but there was a time where it seemed like we had an opportunity and, and we always have an opportunity to remind someone of their value. Whenever you remind someone of their value, you actually increase your own value. So is there a way for us to move towards that? Is that a different father's America? I think that's, I, I think that's part of the America, my children, your children are inheriting. I think it is they are more aware of the diversity of the country. I don't know where your kids went to school. My kids, you know, we were not in a very diverse neighborhood, but they grew up with with all kinds of different kids, and and learned, you know, it's just, it's not an issue. It's probably more so like you, Tom. In other words, the, the divisiveness that, that older and typically white Americans talk about doesn't really play very well amongst- I, I, I love how you, you, you said that. So one thing I, I bristle at is when people talk about how we're more divided than ever, when really they're just like, no, people are just learning and accepting yeah. diversity and that's like when people talk about uh say the black lives matter movement or me too it's like well that's so divisive is it <laughs> yeah really i mean the truth is you know it, it, i think it's very positive so to, back to your to your question dr joe i think there's an enormous opportunity in this generation and in, in my kids generation um, and going forward, the kids coming up after them, they're, they just see it differently. They're not willing to accept a lot of the, uh, how it's been, I think. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm a, you know, an optimistic person and, uh, I'm a glass half full of bourbon, uh, person. <laughs> so, you know, um, I try to look at it that way. The other piece of this, that, and I end the book uh, with a chapter about climate change and global warming. And it is the great leveler. 
nature votes last. Mm. And I think young people are getting on board as they did in the summer of George Floyd. You saw it. You saw people in the street. I'd never seen people, young people of all colors in the street for protest like we did that summer. I think there was a real watershed moment there. And those folks are also very alert to climate change, to global warming, and need to be. Because everybody, uh, ourselves, maybe less so because we might not be around as long, but my children and, and their children, I have three granddaughters, they're going to be in the thick of it. And climate chaos is not going to be fun. So I know it sounds... Um, a little bit dark or pessimistic, but I actually think that's going to bring people together because it's fundamentally not political. It's environmental. Mm-hmm. When the storm hits California, it hurts, but the storm that hits Louisiana hurts too. And the snow that you know covers New England hurts too. Weather is a kind of a I don't know. It's a kind of a kind of an equalizer, isn't it? Um, as the planet gets hotter and the, and and it gets storms become more violent and so forth. I like to say global warming is no longer a theory; it's a lived concept. People live it. It's happening around us, wherever we live, uh, and whatever country we're in. Right. So I think that. It's odd to maybe say it, but I think that's a thing that's going to bring the world together. I hope so. And I I hope it brings us together before we are destroyed by it. Right. Right. And and I I like to think that there is there is enough time left to do it. And but there's also this this idea that it will bring us together. We all have this in common. Doesn't matter whether you're, whatever you are, we are going to be affected by the weather. So that's right. Where are we heading with this? There's, is there a bright side to this court? Well, I'm working on a documentary that I've revived after three years of the COVID COVID kind of put us out of business. Um, The documentary is called 100% Possible, The Battle for the World's Energy Future. Hmm. And what it is, is a suite of plans, specific science-based plans generated by um, scientists at at Stanford and Berkeley, uh, led by a, a brilliant professor named Mark Jacobson. And he started by making a a plan for all 50 states in the U.S. for how we could power every state, including storage, with electricity from wind, water, and the sun. Clean. And then he moved and his team moved on to, they've done 143 countries now. So they go in, they determine how much power does Texas need? How much power does the UK need or how much power does, you know, New England or Massachusetts need where you are. You determine, okay, Massachusetts needs this much power. Well, where would we get that power from clean sources? And they've done all the calculations, all the modeling. So I don't know what the stats are from Massachusetts, but part of it's offshore wind, 
Some of it's onshore wind, some of it's solar, some of it may be geothermal. I'm not sure about that in Massachusetts, but you get the idea. They go through the, each state is different. Each state has a different mix of sources of clean energy. And off you go to the next place and the next country. The reason I bring that up is, first of all, it's remarkable work. But second of all, it's actually the way out. It's the path we need to be on. We need to stop burning stuff. Mm. Fire is a good thing. Fire was good, you know, and we got we got a long way with fire. But we need to stop now because we're warming the planet at a rate that we can no longer afford to, to do. So, so here are some guys who said, we get it. We're committed to this idea of clean energy. And we've figured it out. How many jobs will be created? They, they estimate more than 20 million jobs created worldwide as this transition takes place, 5 million in America alone. And some of those jobs are to put the infrastructure in place and some of them are to operate it, what they call 40, 40 year jobs that people, so it's a, it's a boost, it's a win-win. Anyway, there's that. I must admit, I, I would love to know more about that because where we live, uh, twice a day, we have the ocean with tides. And so there's there's a walk that I can take from my house to a little island called Trounce Island. But at different times of the day, different days, you can't do it because right. it gets flooded. Yeah. And you can see the energy of this water that's just sort of flowing coming in and coming yes. out. It's like, yes. why can't we harness that? It's right. We can. Tidal, tidal is very much in the mix. It, it, it's wind, water, and the sun. Yeah. Uh, and geothermal is included in there. And tidal is included in there. Um, very much so. There's enough, these guys figured it out, that there's enough wind on the planet constantly to power the world for all purposes seven times over. There's enough sun to power the world for all purposes 30 times over. Hmm. So we have the energy. It's raining down upon us, literally, right? Literally, right. And we just need to capture it. And now we have the technology to capture it. It's very exciting hmm. and very positive. And I think it really it really is going to be our, our pathway out of, of global warming. You know, there's there's such an optimism to this. We have, I mean, with COVID, we've come through a pretty dark time. Yes. Um, but I like to think that the bright side of it is that it, it did let us all know how much we have in common. That yes. you, you don't get immunized um, just because you have more than somebody else. Yes. Yeah. Or vice versa. Yeah. I'd like to think that. And, and you know, one of the things about, about the I am approach is small changes have big effects. You can't get much smaller than a virus, but it's really shown us how much we have in common. Yeah. And then there's the global warming, there's climate change, but there's also this idea that it's okay to share. You know, yes. I mean, we've we yes. spent so much of our of our lives thinking if I if I don't have as much as somebody else, somehow I'm less than. Yes. So, yeah, it's, that's yeah. And one of, well, I'll just to add to that thought um, that one of the 
things I hope people take away from my book and that I got out of it. Um, and Barbara too, was this appreciation for the value of being committed to something and sticking with it and not giving up. And that, you think about that, that kind of goes across everything we do. And then the power of love in the mix. We experience love for our children and love for each other in a way I can't imagine having done without this family, without our family. And, and with, it, with the experience we had. So the power of love is a, I know it's a thing people say, but boy, is it, is it something to experience. It's true. And, and one of the things that, that I write about is unleashing the power of respect. Yes. You know, when is the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? Exactly. And that's what we really need. If, if we can recognize that the love that you talk about, the weather we talk about, all these, we all have this in common. I mean, yes. it doesn't matter who I am or where I am. I want the same thing as somebody else which is to be valued. Yes. We have to have that yes. as, as a group, as a species. And we can recover. Yeah, it's so, it's so important, Dr. Joe, what you're saying. There's this notion, and it's all through history, but it's sort of raised its ugly head again in recent times here. This notion of the other. Yes. Making people the other. Mm -hmm. it, you can't kill people if you don't see them as the other. You just I, can't. You can't, you can't discriminate them if unless they're the other. I absolutely agree. I actually, actually was just writing a chapter about that. In order to hurt someone, we actually have to dehumanize them. Exactly. And that yeah. actually says something wonderful about us as human beings. Not something dark. It says something wonderful. That yeah. Who are we really? We're empathic. We care about other people. And the only way we can hurt them is if we make them not be human. That right. it's the out group. Yeah. 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 You know, we can, I know we can do this. You know, it, it comes back to the I am. So the I am has two truths because we are influenced by these four domains your home domain, your social domain, the biological, and the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. A small change can have a big effect. You don't need to change everything. So, Court, with that in mind, given the topic we're talking about, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? So the small change I would recommend is when you wake up in the morning, be grateful for three things. Just three things. In my case, it's easy. I've got four things or five things or six things. But just pick three things that you're grateful for the minute you're feet hit the floor. And what it does is you then <clears throat> are living the day in the space of gratitude. Mm -hmm. It's a small thing. Yeah. But a very different way to live your day. That's true. Than to, than to be living in gratitude. Yeah. Gratitude for what we have instead of the pain of what we do not. Yeah. There's a moment in the book where I talk about standing in the doorway to the nursery one night and the kids are falling asleep and we're pretty exhausted. And I had the thought, I said to myself, I said, wow, we have everything that matters. 
We have three healthy boys. We have a roof over our head. We have food in the refrigerator. We have a car in the driveway. We have jobs. And we spend a lot of time going after stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. And, you know, and it kind of struck me like, really? Why, why waste a minute on the stuff that doesn't matter? Yeah. So it, that, I think that ties back to just gratitude for what we have and, and a way of, of living. Yeah. It's an important small change and, 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 and one that really is, is so doable. You have so much to be grateful for. The second truth of the I am, everybody's got one. Everybody is interested through their IC domain, what you think or feel about them. And that has an effect on their biological domain because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. Sure. And because you're part of someone's home or social domain, what this means is you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Court Cassidy, what kind of influence do you want to be? It's such a great question. Um, I, I want to be an influence for awareness. Um, it's a lot of what I've done with my life. It, it's probably the underpinning of the book in many ways. Um, I want a, a, a awareness of our relationships with each other, awareness of our impact on the planet, uh, awareness of our responsibilities to each other. Um, you know, just a general awareness of what's going on around us like an aliveness, but an, that's what I would like to be for others mm. is a source of awareness. Yeah. And, and you are, you're bringing it to people, not just as a Emmy award winner and a newsman and, but as a dad, as a person who is helping other people recognize that they have. I hope so. Yeah. Absolutely. It's been so much fun having you on the show. How do people find the book? January 17th. Okay. And every day after. <laughs> uh, go to Amazon. Go to Barnes & Noble. Go to your independent bookstore. Ask for it by title uh, and author. Not Your Father's America by Court Cassidy. And um, on Amazon is, is probably the simplest and maybe the fastest. Uh, but you can walk into a Barnes and Noble um, and order the book. It's in their system. It's not in the store. It's not mm -hmm. sitting out with a Michelle Obama's book. Darn. But <laughs> but they can still it's, order it for you. It's, you can still be grateful, Court. It's yes. still that gratitude. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. great. All right. Well, I so appreciate you being here tonight. Tom, as always, thanks for the leadership and putting it all together. Thank you. Folks, Thank you. Hope you enjoyed yeah, Tom, the thank show. you for, for your jumping in, too. I appreciate it. Yeah. Appreciate you. Good night, everybody. Bye, everyone. We'll see you next week. <laughs>